Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we continue our COVID-19 coverage, and as many of our listeners may know, COVID-19 has caused unprecedented disruption in the workspace. Uh, millions of people have to work from home, and there have been so many reports bringing up talking about the end of work as we know it. And uh, personally, I've always been kind of skeptical about those futuristic claims that somehow portray this utopian image and, and filled with tech innovations and we abandon our old past, but uh, those plans often do not seek to actually present any concrete path on how we actually get there. But hopefully today, some of my skepticism can be answered by a very thoughtful, insightful industry leader, both in economics and also in business and, and in, in artificial intelligence research. Uh, his name is Dr. Martin Fleming. He is the chief economist of IBM Corporation. It, it's a huge tech behemoth, as you guys may know it, and his work is really fascinating and interesting. So thanks so much for joining me remotely, Dr. Fleming. Pleased to be with you. Uh, and uh, co-hosting this show uh, with me is my friend, Will Carpenter. He is a rising senior in the economics department at Princeton, just like me. Uh, we've struggled through many of the econometrics classes uh, and uh, grinded many late nights in libraries together. He's a brilliant guy. So thanks so much for being here with me, Will. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tiger. Nice to be here. Uh, so Dr. Fleming, why don't we jump right in? Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself, uh, both your education background and also your research interest in economics and also what you influenced you to join IBM? Sure. So um, I uh, studied uh, economics at Tufts University, earned a PhD uh, many years ago, uh, wrote a dissertation uh, topic on uh, the use of um, uh, selectivity bias, the work that uh, some of you may have uh, studied with James Heckman from Michigan uh, in as it applies to labor markets uh, and employment uh, and training uh, of workers. Um, spent a number of years with uh, Reed Elsevier, which is an information services firm. Uh, they had a large economics department at the time, uh, but um, fairly quickly, within a, a few years, uh, moved into a strategy role uh, and subsequently have really worked at the intersection of economics, strategy, uh, and technology. Um, spent a few years uh, in a consult with a consulting firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, had a number of technology clients, uh, Motorola, AT&T, Philips Electronics, and IBM. I got to know the IBM folks, uh, and they invited me to, to join. That was 20 years ago. Uh, and then for the past 10 years, I uh, have been in the chief economist role. Um, and for most of that period, also had um, a role as chief analytics officer. And in, in, in technology, in the technology industry in the US, um, it's been quite common to bring together economics and analytics. Um, so you look at folks at, for example, Amazon. Uh, Pat Byrie at Amazon has actually hired and has more economists working than does the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. Um, Hal Varian at Google, uh, the folks at Zillow, um, uh, Netflix, the, the, the whole range of technology firms in the US really are 
bringing together the skills of economists uh, and data scientists uh, in the analytics space, and, and we've done uh, much the same. So that brings us to today. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about your research in the intersection of AI, economics, and also IBM's current research focus and research priorities? Because uh, for many of our listeners, it might be kind of a shocking fact to hear that Amazon hires more economists than Federal Reserve. Sure. So in Amazon's case, of course, um, they, they want to make sure that um, they are um, getting the, your purchases to you uh, in the most timely and efficient way. So being able to work out the, uh, the complexity of networks and network structure uh, and optimizing those networks. Uh, you see the very large uh, trucks on the highway and of course they never want to have an empty truck traveling around. So uh, being able to do that efficiently and effectively uh, is a challenge. And now, of course, they have the local del localized delivery as well, and that adds another layer of complexity. So this is network optimization is a place where uh, economics and data science have come together uh, over the years. Um, and those, those are the kind of problems that, uh, that we're all focused on, um, how to be able to deliver greater value to consumers and customers uh, while at the same time uh, create uh, efficiency uh, and effectiveness for the organization who's delivering that capability. So for both sides to be able to benefit. Um, I've spent a great deal of time looking at the impact of technology, particularly uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence on labor markets uh, and to understand what that means uh, for work uh, in the future. Um, and we, we're, we, can, uh, we can certainly talk about that in a, in a lot of detail if you'd like. That sounds great, Dr. Fleming. One quick question I have when you're mentioning um, doing a lot of early consulting before you also um, joined IBM. Like what kind of, can you just go into more specifics about what kind of businesses you're, you're focusing on advertising, maybe some of these um, artificial intelligence developments? And are there any businesses that might be um, hesitant to take on this kind of role or this kind of change and, and why? Well, of course, when I was doing consulting, that was now more than 20 years ago. So uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence capabilities were very limited at the time. It's really been the uh, improved computing capabilities of the past couple of decades that make the artificial intelligence work uh, possible. Um, well, we had a number of engagements working with AT&T. They were trying to um, understand how they could uh, transform their offering set at the time. Remember, if you remember your history, we used to have landline phones and, uh, and phones with long cords on them. Um, and the states, each individual state required um, that the telephone companies provide the service, uh, even if they had to provide service to folks who didn't use it very much. Um, so it was not necessarily a, a good business to be in, and it was kind of the beginnings of the, of the uh, uh, shall I say, the internet era, well before the iPhone was even created. Um, so the, the strategic challenges that many of the communications firms faced is how to move out of the, um, the regulated space and the longstanding requirements that they had as a regulated firm and and move into a space that was meeting the needs that customers 
increasingly we're having at the in the early stages uh, of the internet era. Um, you know, that's all that work has long, long gone and long past now. Uh, you know, we're focused on many, many different challenges. I, I know uh, AI and the phrase uh, future of work are all such big phrases. And, you know, in, in this recent report that you wrote, Cognitive Enterprise, you also encourage businesses to rip up the playbook and make changes within their organization to right. accommodate development of AI to fully benefit from this capacities. But uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about how exactly AI could uh, help businesses grow? Because it seems to a lot of people, uh, AI's most helpful areas are just in data analytics or marketing. They haven't really done too much. And a lot of people say they even, uh, AI has overpromised and underdeveloped, especially in cases like, uh, not to put IBM on a spot, but a lot of people said IBM's Watson Health didn't do that good of a job in terms of uh, diagnosing patients and such. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we all, we all, I'm sure, we all of your, all of the listeners uh, to the podcast today have used artificial intelligence. The simplest artificial intelligence application is when you're typing a text message and your phone predicts the word that you're trying to type. Um, that is a little simple artificial intelligence, it's machine learning application. So anything, uh, any application like that that's attempting to help you and predict uh, the, the outcome of the action that you're taking is in principle a machine learning or an artificial intelligence application. When you get on Netflix um, and it makes a recommendation to you as to what video um, you might like to watch, the Netflix, the Netflix folks have done a great deal of artificial intelligence work to uh, be able to provide that recommendation to you um, and hopefully uh, help you to be more satisfied with their service uh, and enjoy whatever video it is you end up selecting. Same thing when you get on Amazon and you want to buy a book and it says if you like this book, maybe you like this other book or any other purchases that you make. Those are all artificial intelligence applications based on the data that you have provided uh, to um, the, the provider, Netflix or Amazon or anybody else, and they're making a prediction uh, about, the, about the outcome. Um, so those are some examples. There are others, uh, but it's all, it's all really about helping to make decisions uh, be able to produce better quality outcomes. Dr. Fleming, I was hoping to ask, we do hear a lot of uh, fantastic stories about um, companies reaping the benefits of AI, Google and Amazon, but are there any maybe older standing brick and mortar establishments or sectors that you feel um, is, might be a great opportunity for IBM to offer these kinds of services to that might not have um, taken them recently or in the past? Yeah, so so certainly you're right. There's a lot of a lot of hype, um, and where you know we may be uh, four percent of the way or five percent of the way down a path that's going to take twenty or thirty years to fully um, take advantage of the capabilities. Um, and you're also right that a lot of the early applications uh, have been in the technology industry, um, and, and you've cited a few of them. Uh, a close cousin of the technology industry is the financial services industry. Um, so whether it's consumer and retail banking or whether it's investment banking, uh, these are the places where a lot of uh, AI applications are beginning to emerge. 
making recommendations to consumers as to what actions they might want to take around better managing expenses uh, or perhaps recommendations from an investment investment decision uh, perspective. So we're beginning to see more and more applications in the, in the financial services space. Um, likewise, um, in insurance, many of the, the large property and casualty insurance firms are attempting to, uh, to help both themselves and consumers with better, making better decisions. Uh, and at a smaller, smaller area, for example, in pharmaceuticals, a lot of pharmaceutical research uh, being done by data scientists and using the, the applications of AI to look at the chemical compounds that can come together to produce new, new drugs. Um, in, in using the, the traditional uh, manual or physical uh, efforts in the physical world, this is, it is a time-consuming uh, process uh, and a number of the potential combinations can be eliminated, can be eliminated uh, through the use of artificial intelligence and help the pharmaceutical firms uh, get to um, uh, the, the, the combination of compounds that can be more successful uh, more rapidly. So those are some of the areas where we've already seen some, some applications and it's, uh, it, the work is, is continuing, um, but it, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're on a long path here. Um, and the, you know, the notion that artificial intelligence is about to take over the world um, just really misses the, the challenge and the difficulty that organizations face uh, being able to, uh, to deploy these kind of solutions. Uh, and I suppose if we jump too quickly to the somehow dystopian future, we would also miss out on many of the uh, important contributions that artificial intelligence is already doing. Uh, but I also hope to quickly pivot to the theme on future of work because uh, you've written a lot of about it also on how AI disrupts things. But this COVID-19 crisis kind of has kind of caught us off guard, right? Because it has forced many workers to transition to working from home. Uh, would love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on how or whether at all COVID-19 has, has um, disrupted a lot of the trends that you were previously predicting? Um, it has. Um, it, it really has created um, um, enormous, um, an enormous opportunity for transformation. We, we have, as you referenced earlier, um, the, the trend of uh, working from home is one, one example. Uh, but really, uh, if you think a bit more broadly, um, consumers are, um, are really looking uh, to make decisions in a fundamentally different fashion. Um, and there's, been, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety about the spread of the virus. Uh, one um, piece of data, one fact to help to bring home the point is um, in, the, in the month of uh, April, which is the most recent data that we have, in the US, 33% um, of, of income, of all the income earned was saved. Now think about that. The, the savings rate is usually in the order of 6%, 5%, 8%. One third, as an average, one third of all income was not spent, it was saved, which means if that's the average, there were folks on the one end of the extreme and saving 50% of their income. Um, and on the other extreme, you know, quite small, of course. Um, 
So it's um, uh, we've already seen the the attitudes uh, of consumers shift quite significantly, and it's going to take time um, for for all of that to unwind itself to come back. And you know, you ask yourself the question um, uh, among older uh, th that is non college students, non undergraduates. Uh, are you seeing folks attending large events, sporting events, theaters? Uh, I think the answer is no. College, college students are the exception, uh, still gathering in large crowds. Um, and and that's, you know, that's not happening uh, with most of the rest of the world. Uh, young parents uh, and older folks uh, who are concerned about uh, the, the, the continuing spread of the virus. So consumer purchasing has been dramatically uh, impacted by all of this. And that, it's going to take time for that to unwind. Dr. Fleming, I was hoping maybe you could kind of go into a little bit more detail about maybe some of like deflationary fears you have with this massive increase in spending. I know the Fed has recently mentioned that they're extremely hesitant for some reason to drop it at negative interest rates. Do you have any opinion or insight on that? Well, so that's, that's two different questions there. Um, the, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve has not adopted the approach that the European Central Bank has with uh, negative interest rates. Um, they feel that it uh, doesn't provide any additional incentive uh, for businesses or consumers to borrow uh, and engage in spending. Um, and it only hurts the profitability uh, of, the, of the financial institutions. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the issue of negative interest rates is one that uh, has, has received uh, a great deal of attention um, and, and really has been looked at pretty carefully in the U.S. by the Federal Reserve. Uh, and they're very, uh, it's almost certain that they're going to they're gonna stay away from, from negative interest rates. With respect to deflation, uh, deflation is, is, of course, a grave concern. Um, because um, as um, consumers and businesses, we've seen this in Japan uh, quite significantly, uh, as consumers and businesses um, begin to postpone purchases because they expect prices to be lower in the future. You know, imagine you're going to make a purchase and you think, oh, a month from now, I'll get a better deal. I'll wait till the price drops. Um, as that continues to happen time after time after time, economic activity and growth turns, gets slower and slower and slower and turns negative. So you get into a deflationary spiral, which we've seen um, particularly in Japan, uh, is very difficult uh, to get out of. Um, so the, the notion that um, um, we want to avoid um, deflation is one that's, uh, that's, that's very important and it's quite a severe, severe issue. Um, so it's, so, so it's going to receive a lot of attention uh, from monetary policymakers. Uh, negative interest rate is something that Will and I are both very interested in because we did our junior year research paper on, on related topics, as, as you may know. So, yeah, I uh, do know. It's a, it's a terrific <laughs> paper. Congratulations. Uh, so I was, I was going to ask you, uh, since we're on the topic of Fed uh, economic projections and unemployment, uh, recently uh, the Fed said that the unemployment rate will end at 9.3% at the end of 2020, which is a huge number. I mean, we're not seeing this level of unemployment for a very, very long time. Right. Uh, and you released your report on the future of work in 2019, which was a time 
that Fed Chair Jerome Powell said when the U.S. had its first tight labor market in years. Uh, so we, you know, transitioned from a very tight, tight labor market to right now with huge high inflations. Uh, and I would just love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on how you project the next couple of years shape up for uh, labor market is also whether that changes some of your predictions. Um, so we, we, ex we expect that um, we're going to continue to see both the U.S. economy and the global economy struggle over the next couple of years. You have, we have to first begin by having a point of view around public health conditions. And I'm going to separate two thoughts between public health versus health care. When you think about health care, that's care delivered in a physician's office or a clinic or a hospital which of course matters in this case because the capacity of the system to deliver care uh, is, is the constraint that, uh, that policymakers face in the presence of uh, co the COVID-19 disease. Public health is around epidemiology and virology and understanding the virus and the spread of the virus um, and where, where that might be headed uh, into the future. Our view is, is that uh, it's going to take time to develop for the global population to develop sufficient immunity for the virus to no longer uh, be a threat. The virus is not going to go away. It's just like measles and chickenpox. It, measles and chickenpox still exist, but we're, we're all largely immune to it, so it's not, not a problem. Um, the the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus will very likely, with some high probability, always exist in the world, uh, but at some point over the next, hopefully, three or four years, there'll be sufficient immunity, uh, probably as a result of a vaccine, um, that it will no longer impact our lives on a daily basis. So the question is, how are we gonna to get to that immunity and how long is it gonna take? Um, it's probably not gonna be herd immunity. In other words, uh, we're all infecting each other, perhaps except among college students, but for the rest of the world, we're probably gonna to have to have a vaccine. The vaccine will probably have to be distributed worldwide um, and, and billions, of billions of people will have to be vaccinated uh, in order to, to build up that immunity. That's gonna take time. Um, it's not gonna happen quickly. Uh, even if we have a vaccine developed in 12 to 18 months, that would be a record pace uh, for, for that to occur. And then, of course, we need to have the, the vaccine manufactured in large quantities, and then, of course, um, has to be distributed and deployed uh, through the healthcare system to, to uh, people. All of that impacts the economic, the reason why I take you through all of that is all of that impacts the economic outlook. Um, this week, for example, we, we uh, got a forecast that was published by OECD, uh, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development headquartered in Paris, which is expecting with some high probability uh, a recession, a return to a recession in the second half of 2020 and early 2021, when a second wave of infections begins to appear. So as these waves of infection appear, it's gonna impact economic activity to some extent because there'll have to be a return to social distancing um, and quarantines to some extent. Um, that's why you see the, the, the labor market forecast and the unemployment rate forecasts, uh, which are continuing to be quite high. Consumers are fearful, uh, returning to activity slowly. 
That, therefore, workers are being returned to work slowly, uh, and both in terms of demand, labor demand is slow, but also on a su the supply side, many workers are fearful to return to work as well. Um, so, so it impacts both sides of the labor market, both supply and demand, um, and consequently elevating the unemployment rate. But all of, it all of it follows from whatever you believe is going to occur from a public health perspective. Well, under this greater backdrop of COVID-19 crisis, and you know, as you mentioned, the difficulties on both the supply and demand of labor market, and I was, as I was reading through some of your reports on the future of work, one thought I had uh, was that in the intersection of the debate between automation and labor market, I, I just think if automation is fairly easily accessible for employers, and if it's harder to bring employ, employees back to work, uh, and if the government chooses to you know, raise the minimum wage or raise corporate tax, whatever, for some reason, then the employers may simply just choose to automate away the jobs and, and not bring the workers back. Uh, and you know, Will and I studied labor economics a little bit this past spring as well, so that's something that we would love to hear your thoughts on. So automation doesn't happen like that. That's not how it works. Um, when, when businesses automate a business process, uh, number one, uh, you need the talent, you need the data scientists, um, you need the developers, uh, you need the, um, we, we think of them as consultants, but the folks with business acumen and strategy skill um, so that they can understand the business process. And then number two, the business process has to be transformed. You're not going to automate. If the process is not working and you think you'd like to introduce some automation, you don't automate a broken process. You transform the business process. And in the process of transformation, you introduce the automation. And then number three, you have to change the behavior of individuals. So it becomes a change management challenge because nobody likes uh, to have to change the way they do things. Nobody likes change, so change management is difficult. All of that, the talent, the, the, pro the business process transformation, the change management, all has to happen after the technology has been put in place. Um, the technology uh, shift is difficult. Um, I would assert it's not the most difficult piece of it, uh, but it is still difficult nonetheless. Uh, but think about organizations that have um, dozens of, even a large organization like IBM thinks of itself as having dozens of business processes, um, all needing to be transformed. Um, it doesn't happen quickly. Uh, it happens, it takes time um, to, to do all of this uh, change that, that's occurring. Um, so you just can't um, magically um, I, what's the right word? Snap your fingers or, or wish it to occur. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's real work. And on the context of time, Dr. Fleming, I was wondering, do you have any idea at this point of a before and after picture maybe caused by the coronavirus crisis where businesses seem to be accelerating their interest to have almost a complete kind of work from home environment? And maybe a question to add on to that is, are there any aspects of, um, working in a corporate office, having some kind of face-to-face -face interaction you feel will still be important to maintain in the future? Yeah, so our view has, has always been that getting folks to work together, you know, sit in the same room, sit in a long table together, 
be able to interact on a, on a daily or a weekly basis, just as uh, you and Tiger did uh, when you were doing your, um, your monetary policy paper. Um, that's, that's a very productive environment and way to work because you don't have to send uh, text messages to each other or uh, we use Slack, of course, many organizations use Slack or, or email back and forth or have uh, conference calls or video conferences. You're, you're, everybody's all working together. Uh, now that's not possible, of course, in the, when, it, when uh, a pandemic uh, is, is on. Um, but nonetheless, the there, are still, there still continue to be benefits to having teams work together uh, in a productive environment. So we're going to have to learn differently. How can we make use of the video conferencing capability that we all have so that we can all work together on a video conference, maybe all day long, uh, eight hours a day on a video conference working together um, to be creative and to be innovative and to, to be able to work and build off others' ideas. Um, and th but then there will be other circumstances where folks need to come together keeping the appropriate six foot difference, uh, but still sitting around the same area where they can uh, interact and, and uh, engage in uh, create, creative work and uh, uh, innovation together. Um, so the world is relearning um, the difference between those two different modes of operation, um, and it's gonna take time. And, and I suppose, uh, you know, after COVID-19 happened, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley's CEO, James Gorman, came out and said, you know, I don't really foresee thousands of Morgan Stanley employees crowding back to the skyscrapers and a lot of Silicon Valley startups, you know, like the small startups like Zoom or Slack, they said they're very comfortable commanding their employees remotely. But I suppose for a very traditional tech giant like IBM or Oracle, I mean, it's very hard to, to just completely transition to remote, remote work. Just no, I, no, I don't, I wouldn't agree with that. 95% of IBM employees today are working from home. Um, and it will likely stay that way uh, for much of the rest of the year. Um, as far as I know, decisions have yet to be made um, around um, when, uh, when uh, a return to, return to work or return to the office environment will occur. Um, but um, it's, um, you know, it's still, still work from home, I think, for many, if not all, uh, technology organizations. I had a quick question. Um, there's been a lot of discussion and controversy over sometimes the efficiency of AI and how much data is actually being generated day to day. Do you think a transition to something like what we're doing right now on Zoom that can almost capture everything we're saying, maybe any element of our interaction might actually improve what solutions could be achieved through AI rather than potentially having conversations in the office that might never actually be somehow recorded or used in the future? Well, certainly more, more data uh, is always helpful. Um, you know, being able to take uh, video or audio uh, and turn it into data, we, what we would call natural language processing, um, is an important area of, of work and of effort and a, and a lot of progress is being made. But all of that requires uh, an enormous amount of effort to be able to, uh, to deploy those capabilities. Um, and and that's, it's, being, it's being done. Um, but again, uh, there, there is enormous amount of uh, uh, unstructured data in the world uh, and we're only beginning uh, to, to, uh, 
to tackle that challenge. And I think Tiger and I just have to ask as uh, college students, where do you think learning more about um, data science and AI would begin? Has IBM focused on um, changes in college education? I mean, both of us, we know that this kind of degree might not actually be offered at many universities yet, right. or might have even started a high school level, because it's certainly something that doesn't seem Well, there are certainly high school students that are learning how to code in Python. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a great first step. Uh, we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, we have, uh, one of my roles at IBM is to lead the data science profession. Um, and uh, one element of the data science profession is a certification that we've created with an outside third party group so that those who get certified within IBM will have that recognition externally as well. Uh, we're now working with uh, uh, a, two universities, I guess. We're in the early stages of working with two universities to begin to introduce that certification capability into their uh, academic programs so that students who are studying data science um, can number one, earn a certification, but number two, learn what the requirements are in terms of uh, working and in the, the recruitment and the hiring process. Um, so we're beginning to see uh, more and more of that activity uh, at the undergraduate level. I think it's really interesting because you talked about the rise of data science uh, and a lot of people are also talking about the rise of data scientists. Uh, it's yeah. really interesting because I uh, just interviewed the chief data officer at um, uh, NFL just last week and he said he thinks in the future there will be more chief data officers who take on CEO roles. I mean, uh, I mean we're already kind of seeing this because Santiago Nadella at Microsoft, Sundar Pichai at uh, Alphabet, Google, Arvind Krishna recently took over at IBM. And those are all Indian born, born uh, executives who were trained as engineers and rose through the ranks in very technical positions. And their background are very different from, you know, the stereotypical corporate America managers who, who came in from sales and, and general management after receiving MBA degrees. So I would love just to hear a little bit more of your thoughts. You know, do, do you think uh, in a corporation like IBM, as it pivots to the future, it would just need more data scientists who also understand businesses. A absolutely. Um, the, the combination of data science and what we refer to as uh, business acumen to be able to understand how businesses function, operate, challenges, problems, that combination is really what we're looking for in data science. Now, there is no renaissance person who has all a package of skills um, so we have to team people together, um, but over time we hope to develop those skills so that those folks who bring the data science skills can learn the business skills and those folks who come with the business skills can learn the data science skills. Um, but, it, but you're right, it's the combination of the two that really is uh, what all organizations are looking for, uh, but it you know, has to be grown and developed over time. Uh, you know, we, we, all have, we all have our strengths and we all have our limitations. Uh, and through experience, you can uh, help to, uh, to even those things out. So Dr. Fleming, I think uh, Will and I were just uh, thinking right before the interview, there must be a separation between COVID-19's impact on the future of work versus the longer term of future of work in general that, that uh, might contain machine learning or AI or other technologies that uh, you and your colleagues have long studied about uh, before the coronavirus even hit. So 
I thought maybe Will and I had already asked you a bunch of questions on how COVID-19 changed, you know, work from home and stuff like that. But maybe we could dive in a little bit deeper about your research on, you know, the long-term future of work. Sure. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Well, economic shocks um, have, um, have, not surprisingly, a significant impact on global economic activity. Um, we all know, perhaps, uh, I shouldn't say we all know, um, I'm sure many of, many of your listeners will have learned about um, the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, um, and realized that in the subsequent 10 years since that time, um, the global economy, and in particular in the US, but the other developed economies, have really been quite disappointing in terms of growth productivity growth, uh, wealth accumulation, and importantly, uh, increased income inequality. Um, it turns out that economic shocks of, of the magnitude of the great financial crisis um, quite often have these persistent effects where disappointing or subpar uh, growth conditions exist for an extended period. We can look, for example, way back in history in the 1970s, uh, when there were two uh, very large oil price shocks, both of which were followed by recessions, uh, and then both of which subsequently were followed by very weak economic growth. Um, certainly, uh, you, you'll be familiar with the, the China shock, right? David Artur at MIT has done a lot of work with his colleagues around the impact that um, the entrance of China into the global economy and its role as the world's factory um, has had on many uh, parts of the United States as well as uh, Europe and Japan, but in particular the United States. And not only have we seen job losses, but we've seen quite dire social consequences uh, with opioid addiction, increased incarcer incarceration rates, suicides, uh, divorces, et cetera. So, uh, a, an economic shock that has had quite deep and profound social consequences. Um, however, uh, not all economic shocks uh, result in such uh, pessimistic or poor outcomes. Um, if you think about what happened at, during the Second World War um, in the United States, uh, industry, manufacturing industry converted on a massive scale to wartime production. The auto industry was producing uh, military vehicles. Uh, there were clothing manufacturers who were producing uh, uniforms and clothing and equipment. Even an organization like IBM converted production to produce weapons that were needed by the military. So enormous disruption to economic activity. And of course, uh, there was a large uh, military that was built. Uh, many young men, they were largely young men, although there were some young women, um, joined the military, learned new skills, learned new behaviors, new ways of living, became much more disciplined in their lifestyles. Um, and of course, um, women who weren't in the military, many went out to work because the, the, the men who left had to be replaced by the, the women who stayed home. All of this, of course, came to an end. Um, and with all the skill that was built up through the experience in the military, through the experience in the, in the workforce, and the benefit of the GI Bill, which, uh, which financed uh, college uh, tuition 
for our veterans in the military, there was an enormous increase in the education level of the workforce. And the, the experience, the, the transformation of the manufacturing sector and all the skill it was built up resulted in, or well, was followed by uh, a period of very strong economic growth. And the key is, is that when economic activity gets disrupted, businesses don't go back to doing things the old way. They find new ways to do things and put in new technology and new manufacturing facilities and new business processes uh, combined with the new skills that workers learned through, through the military and through their experience. Um, and that contributed to a period a 30-year period of very, very strong growth. Um, of course, uh, as you'll know from your history, there was also the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, an enormous investment in the space program, uh, an enormous investment in the military, all of which uh, created considerable intellectual property, intellectual capital, which also added to growth. One quick example that I find quite interesting is uh, one of the reasons why um, uh, cell phones, iPhones, mobile phones work so well today is because of data compression. You know, transmitting all of the all of the data all at once in every call. But a lot, there was an, there were enormous advances in data compression in the space program in the 60s and the 70s because data was being is being transmitted uh, over such vast distances in outer space that data compression became very important. And that now has led to um, enormous uh, innovation that we we're still continuing to realize all of these years later. So that's an example of a shock, quite, quite shocking shock, a military world war shock that then led to enormous, enormous growth. Um, you, you can, we can, you know, we can debate and we can argue the causality, but it's quite an interesting coincidence uh, as to how all this happened. With, with, with industry transforming from the old way to the new way, new skill being developed, new technology, new intellectual property being developed. So my question is, uh, is the pandemic a shock of equal magnitude? And if we're gonna go through this for three or four years and we're gonna disrupt our lives and be forced to find new ways to do things, is that going to result in some very positive uh, outcomes uh, in terms of growth, uh, productivity, uh, income growth, wealth, and uh, perhaps even more uh, or less unequal distribution of income. Um, and, and so that's, those are some of the questions that, that we've begun to think about. Yeah, Dr. Fleming, if I may, one quick question as we kind of expand to a more global perspective. Maybe you could tell people who might be listening about um, IBM's scope in that regard. Are there any economies beyond the United States you might be focusing on or you might be interested in the most in offering some of these products? I know you coin yourselves as the international business machines, of course, but I'm not sure if people listening might know exactly where you, where you could be. Sure. So absolutely. Um, IBM operates in about 200 countries around the world. Um, IBM's revenue looks a bit like global GDP and in terms of the proportions and the percentages of how it's distributed, uh, roughly in proportion to economic activity globally. Um, and of course, um, uh, China and Japan are very important markets uh, for IBM. Um, and all of the growth and innovation that's occurring in those markets are places where our teams are doing uh, quite important work. And likewise, uh, in Europe, 
which is of course now uh, coming together um, in a more single market, more unified fashion. Um, and, and of course, um, Africa and Latin America, uh, which are um, certainly Africa is, is uh, growing very rapidly, seeing a very rapid growth um, and, uh, and certainly beginning to uh, transform and adopt many of the technologies that we're talking about here. And just touching again on what you were mentioning earlier about the magnitude of the COVID crisis, have any other economists um, mentioned any opinions that maybe are contradictory to yours on what they think about this crisis versus something like the Great Recession or the uh, dot-com bubble, something like that? Yeah, I, I haven't heard any yet, but I, I think it's only because it's too soon. Um, we'll have as many opinions as we have economists uh, on this topic, I'm sure, before too long. Um, but but certainly when we talk with uh, C-level executives who are leading large organizations, um, they're really focused on two primary, they have two real priorities. One, the first priority in all these discussions really is the health and safety of their workers and their workers' families, uh, their ability to continue to work and, and take time off uh, and, and pay attention to the needs of their family, um, but also be able to stay healthy and stay safe. Um, it's really, you know, for all the criticism that business leaders and the business sector gets and uh, a lot of, uh, accused of a lot of nasty behavior, um, it's really been quite heartening to see uh, the real genuine concern that business leaders have um, over, over the health and safety uh, of, their, of their workforces. And then secondly, uh, is the notion of this longer term transformation. Um, I, I, I would say most uh, leaders don't have a firm or clear view as to where that um, transformation is headed or what it might look like, but intuitively, they believe that uh, the kind of disruption that we're experiencing is going to result in significant change over a period of a few years. So it's still a bit nascent, still new, um, and, but nonetheless, there's a recognition that um, we're in for probably some fairly significant change. Dr. Fleming, one question I wanted to ask, like a popular example of how quickly things change, especially within the technological uh, sector that gets pulled up a lot is like Moore's law, mm -hmm. or maybe the computing power, or the number of transistors you can add to right. one of the silicon chips doubles every two years. Do you feel like maybe your opinions or your, your outlooks on the future of work also change every, I don't know, one to two years? Is that something you feel happens often? Well, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I was uh, talking with uh, a group of uh, colleagues uh, recently, and um, we're talking about not Moore's Law, uh, where we see uh, capabilities doubling every 18 months, but a law that's yet to be named uh, around artificial intelligence, where capabilities are doubling every three months. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a real recognition that um, the kinds of um, uh, innovation uh, in growth that's necessary uh, to be able to deliver the kind of value that we all want in our both our personal and our business lives uh, is happening at a pretty fast pace. 
And can you speak? I don't know. Sorry to interrupt, Will, but I don't know whether or not anybody's proven the three months yet. But but that's the that's the hypothesis that we're at. We're we're seeing very very rapid change. Yeah, no, no problem at all. I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about the long term effects of AI on maybe lower income workers. I know you mentioned that there um, are a lot of uh, emerging economies that might have um, you know this type of labor. I'm just wondering if you could talk about maybe your outlook for 20 years on specifically low-income um, workers, and not necessarily in the United States as well, perhaps yeah. not. Yeah, so that's an interesting question because the technology uh, could possibly have a differential impact across different regions of the world, whereas in the United States and to some degree Western Europe and Japan, um, the impact has been more in the mid-wage workers, the, the middle tier, uh, if you will, of, of workers. Uh, we use the term job polarization where uh, the low wage and the high wage workers is where more employment is appearing and it's the mid-wage workers that have lost employment share. Uh, but in the developing and emerging market world uh, where low cost labor has been important, uh, many of these low cost roles are, are ones that perhaps are more easily automated. Um, you think about call center work that, you know, we see quite a bit of in a country like India uh, as more and more natural language processing capability, uh, both for voice and for text becomes available. Um, there is likely to be less demand uh, for call center workers um, in, in across many of these countries and for other similar, uh, more manual um, repetitive functions, if you will. Um, so the, the impact could be um, uh, quite different across the differing geographies. In the U.S. Uh, and Western Europe, it's, it will likely be more of an issue around the distribution of income and wages, particularly for mid-income workers, whereas in the developing and emerging market economies, uh, it may be more of an issue of the share of employment uh, for low-wage workers. I think it would also be important to bring up the caveat that you actually brought up earlier in our interview is that automation doesn't happen overnight. We're in a couple of months. Right. We're talking about longer term trends. We, we are. We were talking about uh, change that's going to happen over time. Um, and so that gives workers an opportunity to um, improve their skills, transform their skills, find new opportunities uh, to work in new areas. Um, and that's important for workers to understand that we're seeing the rate and pace of change increase, um, and it's, it's necessary to continuously upgrade our skills. Uh, you know, you were just uh, previously mentioning about how shocks led to this enormous transformation of technology, and even the world wars or the Cold War has led to this eruption of intellectual power. Mm -hmm. There's so much intellectual capacity being built. And, IBM research and people like you, the researchers who produce knowledge, are very much at the forefront pushing this wave of innovation. Uh, and as, as I mentioned very early in the beginning, uh, IBM research is kind of the forefront model that also inspired Microsoft, Amazon, Google to then develop their own research department. So I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, your thoughts on how IBM research uh, or even Microsoft research or any of those big corporations are, are using research to take us to the next step. Do you think uh, private corporations, research departments can have a better understanding of topics like AI 
than government agencies who, who push for, for, or universities who work on AI research. We'd love to just hear a little bit more. Yeah, so, so certainly, certainly it's true that uh, research organizations in the private sector are working uh, much more closely with the, with the really detailed and large business problems that need to be solved. Um, so they have an advantage of being able to um, do the research that's necessary directed to the practical implementation and opportunities to create value. Um, now, in the case of IBM, for example, uh, we have created uh, quite a unique partnership with MIT where instead of IBM providing a very large financial contribution to MIT, both MIT and IBM together uh, have formed a partnership, each contributing $250 million over 10 years to jointly research uh, uh, artificial intelligence um, and uh, related topics around causal inference. So this is, this is a way of being able to bring the academic community and the research community together to, to address and attack problems in a very practical way. Um, I, would also I would also suggest that partnering with governments um, is also important as part of this. Uh, we have, we, we have a, great, uh, a great deal of partnerships with both uh, the US government as well, uh, quite importantly with the European Union as well. Um, and so that, that leg of the, of the partnership uh, is, is a critical element as well. And in terms of research and maybe even partnership, like you're saying, one topic we were hoping to touch on when we have you is our, our digital currencies. Mm -hmm. Something Tiger and I are, are certainly both interested in. I've taken that course with um, uh, Professor Bruno Meyer, who's definitely an expert on the topic. And we're wondering um, if you could just speak a little bit about your own research and IBM's involvement with promoting some kind of blockchain cryptocurrency and how maybe it might compare to what other countries in Europe and China have already tried to implement. Sure, sure. So the first uh, distinction that I always try to make is the difference between uh, a cryptocurrency, as we might know, uh, a Bitcoin or other related cryptocurrencies and a digital currency, where a cryptocurrency, cryptocurrencies typically are used as a way of compensating oftentimes developers who are contributing uh, code in, in development projects. I think of, the, of those uh, currencies as much more like a security, uh, which one accumulates uh, and grows in value um, and uh, accumulates wealth as a result. The, a digital currency um, is much more uh, like cash or for transactional purposes, um, to be able to make transactions more, more efficient. Um, the, the, uh, the, the challenge is, is that, um, when we, when we want to make payments, um, particularly in the business sector, it's a very inefficient process today. Um, so here's, here's an example. Um, imagine that you, we have a very large ship filled with automobiles uh, that leaves Japan and arrives at Long Beach Harbor. Uh, maybe, you know, 10,000 automobiles. Uh, and there may be uh, $5 million worth of worth of payments that have to be made by the receivers of those automobiles, the dealers who are receiving them 
back to the manufacturer in Japan. Well, it's gonna take three or four days for, for that payment uh, to occur. That's in effect a 1% tax, reducing the value of that payment to the manufacturer. So it's a very inefficient process because every transaction takes three or four days to, to be completed. A digital currency, uh, on the other hand, is much more immediate. I can send the both of you an email and you'll get it in a few seconds. But if I wanna send you um, $10,000, it's gonna take four days. Um, so so there, there, there really is no, no real reason for that delay other than the fact um, that there are, there's a large number of incumbent uh, bank, banks, bankers, uh, who generate a lot of a revenue and a lot of income uh, as a result of the payment system, right? Because all this cash is sitting on various balance sheets overnight at various places. Um, and so naturally there's a reluctance to, to transform that business. Um, so somebody's gonna come along and figure out um, how to do this more efficiently uh, and be able to um, competitively threaten um, the existing uh, established players. Now we do have uh, banks like JPMC, JPMorgan Chase, who of course recognize this and have uh, really been quite active in creating their own version of a digital currency. So that's certainly smart strategic, uh, strategic a smart strategic initiative. Um, but nonetheless, um, there's certainly a great deal of reluctance to um, to, uh, to address that source of inefficiency. But along comes a number of smaller countries. Uh, one not so small country, which is China, um, is, now, has not, is now launching a digital currency, but there are other smaller central banks uh, doing, uh, taking similar actions. Um, the, chal the challenge is, of course, um, a very large proportion of the world's transactions occur in dollars. Um, so, uh, you, you know, if you if a digital currency is going to be really successful, it has to be uh, a Federal Reserve digital currency um, because of the of the volume of transactions that occur. Now, uh, because the dollar is the the world's global currency, there are enormous advantages to those of us who live in the U.S. Our interest rates are lower, meaning we can buy homes and cars and all kinds of other products, including. Uh, the business sector can borrow funds at lower rates. Um, so uh, there, there, there is what has been referred to as an exorbitant advantage of having the dollar as the global digital currency. So there's a bit of a war here, right, between maintaining the advantage that the U.S. has with the global currency um, and other players, other nations, um, trying to take advantage of the inefficiencies that exist um, and, and uh, shall we say, supplant the dollar. Um, and, and this is going to uh, play out over an extended period of time. Um, and uh, and I, I'm not sure anybody knows exactly yet where it's all, all going to take us, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an important, uh, important debate. And I was hoping, could you talk a little bit more about how the Federal Reserve might um, take control or manage a cryptocurrency? Because I think for a lot of people listening, they know about Bitcoin, but that certainly has a decentralized nature, right. that's not necessarily controlled by the government at all. And it also has even had 
um, kind of an interesting taxation scheme where it's treated more like an investment with capital gains. Right. You know, that's probably not what the federal government has in mind if they were to introduce a new cryptocurrency. So yeah. So there's been some, there are interesting proposals. In fact, there's, for anybody who's really interested in this topic, uh, Julia Coronado and Simon Potter at the Peterson Institute have a paper um, outlining exactly the kind of proposal you're asking about. Um, so you can imagine the Federal Reserve creating a digital currency, um, and it would then um, put on its balance sheet a third liability. So they have reserves and cash today. They would add a digital currency as a as another uh, liability they would issue, um, and then they could they can make that available in various ways, either to uh, banks or dealers or even consumers. Um, now that's the most probably far-fetched and far-out idea. It would require significant legislative change, uh, but you can imagine that that um, at some future point in time, it would be quite a radical change, but uh, the Federal Reserve could could make um, a, currency, digital, a digital currency available to households as well. Um, and it would, it would, of course, add that, uh, add that liability to its balance sheet, and, um, and it, would look, it would look like an electronic version of cash. And just to go off of that, can you clarify, when you talk about adding this as maybe a third element to a balance sheet, does that mean a cryptocurrency used by the federal government might have some kind of centralized ledger, uh, ledger system, or is this still something decentralized? Because I know that is also a characteristic. Yeah, so for a central bank digital currency, uh, it would be centralized. It would sit on, on the central bank's balance sheet, whether it's here uh, at, in the US at the Federal Reserve or any of the other countries who are already doing this. That's what another one of the differences between a digital currency and a cryptocurrency, which, which of course is decentralized. And one thing maybe we were hoping to know about IBM's involvement with something like this is, do you see any serious technological vulnerabilities with something like a cryptocurrency that we might not have seen with um, just minted money? Is there anything that maybe IBM could get involved with when um, currency might become even more technological? Yeah, well, so there are, of course, there are, uh, there are enormous issues. Um, uh, there, of course, there are security issues with uh, physical currency as well. Um, you know, if you look at um, where 100 US $100 bills are circulating, a very small proportion are circulating in the US. Uh, most of it is used by uh, other uh, somewhat nefarious creatures around the world uh, for various transactions. Um, so there's, you know, there are certainly security issues on both sides of this. Um, and like any um, electronic transaction, there, there are always going to be, there's always going to be the need to pay attention to cyber, cyber risk. Um, but uh, with respect to the, the larger question of uh, the involvement of an organization like IBM, you can imagine that uh, if, the, if the payment system today um, that is being operated by the financial sector uh, and, the, and the large financial institutions changes, switches over to a real-time payment system with a digital currency, uh, a vast proportion of their um, IT infrastructure would have to be fundamentally redesigned and, and changed. Um, so that, that would now, of, of course, for an organization like IBM, that would be a, a tremendous opportunity uh, but on the other hand, it would it would be a, a quite significant 
um, change that that the that the banking system would have to go through in order to be able to accommodate real-time payments um, because they're not they're not set up to do that today the the rails that all of these transactions ride on are really based on this you know, two three day uh, payment payment process and i know we just quickly touched on some other economies around the world that might be implementing something like this do you feel like the US or IBM has their eyes on any country in particular that might be piloting cryptocurrency right now? Just off the top of my head, I'm yeah, thinking. So, so the, the, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is probably um, the central bank that's been the most active in this space. Um, now, China, of course, has, has announced a, a digital currency and has, has begun to, to launch um, a, a currency. So they're, they're very active as well. Um, in a much more limited uh, fashion in terms of its use and its circulation. But uh, certainly uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is quite ambitious in this space. There are other uh, nations that are, that are beginning to, to, look at, to look at this work, uh, other uh, South Asian nations and Middle East nations. Um, so there are a number of smaller central banks that are building capabilities in this area. Dr. Fleming, one thing. Really, somebody, somebody's going to figure this out at some point, and uh, it will change the way we do things. Uh, Dr. Fleming, one thing I am quite curious about after hearing, uh, especially the distinction you made between cryptocurrency and digital currency, uh, is a really interesting distinction. And, and one thing that came up to my mind is Facebook's whole uh, spiel about Libra. Yeah. Uh, and Zuckerberg even went to uh, the Capitol Hill and testified, and there was so much op opposition, not just from U.S. lawmakers, but also even from European lawmakers and Bank of International Settlements uh, against that. And it just seemed to people that we don't want Facebook to have, you know, our money. We don't want Facebook to be able to print money. Right. Uh, and, and, that, and that's the sense. So I suppose that that's where the clear distinction comes in, is that in our future, uh, a digital currency that is helped also managed by the government that helps with transaction and payment will probably make our life easier. Whereas something that is controlled by a corporation is probably not as safe, that, that, that probably won't make people feel safe enough to give money to. Yeah, so Facebook of course faces their own challenges. Um, some of us are old enough to go back to a time in 2004 when we, uh, when we uh, agree, we clicked on the I agree button on Facebook uh, and didn't really know what we were agreeing to. Uh, Facebook probably didn't know what we were agreeing to, where they were asking us to agree to either, and subsequently have used all of our uh, private information um, in many, many different ways, some good and perhaps some quite not so good. Um, so it's a bit of a reputational issue that members of Congress have with Facebook, uh, and, and also central bankers, uh, who uh, are quite explicit in saying, um, we didn't, we didn't understand the privacy implications uh, when we were joining the, the Facebook uh, global, uh, global network. Uh, we're, we're certainly not gonna repeat that uh, if, if and when uh, Facebook begins to be part of a group launching a digital currency. So the regulators are uh, taking a very active role uh, because of the, of the um, the use of private information in the past and not going to uh, not going to be fooled again. 
Uh, absolutely. I think the rise of uh, quote unquote cryptocurrency uh, was also coupled with people's distrust for the financial system or the Wall Street. So it kind of had this mystical image. Uh, but then as, as you rightly ex explained, the sense of digital currency where it helps us with uh, our payments and able to be backed by central banks and governments, that's also kind of a different story from uh, the, the Bitcoin that we, that we know. So exactly. absolutely. Uh, do you have a timeline uh, for us, prediction, in terms of when we might have that uh, total transformation? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to know. Um, you know, certainly the Chinese are going to push hard uh, over the course of the next couple of years. Um, it's it's um, the, the U.S., the Federal Reserve has announced a, a plan to... Uh, to have a, a real-time payment system of sorts, which is a good first step. Uh, the, the Bank of England has a, has a real-time payment system that they're implementing. Um, it's not, that's not a digital currency, it's just a real-time payments uh, system. So um, it's gonna depend upon where the pressure comes from and who's, uh, and who's willing to, to respond. Um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's gonna happen quickly. Uh, one way to think about this is, you know, the, the, the British pound was the global currency for a very long period of time. Uh, and early in the 20th century, uh, the dollar became the world's global currency where global transactions are conducted in dollars. Uh, you know, we're now talking something that's been 100 years. Um, so these, these cycles last a long time. Now we're talking about technology and a digital currency, so the cycles are probably not nearly as long, uh, but but nonetheless, uh, we're 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 probably uh, the the unit of measure is probably centuries. Whether it's a quarter of a century or a half a century or a full century, it's not it's not years. Um, so it, this is these things uh, uh, happen uh, over a long period of time. Uh, Dr. Fleming, before we end the interview, I know we've already taken so much of your time. Is there anything else in this role that is going on that's on your mind, that's in IBM's mind that you, you, you think we haven't touched on? Anything interesting that you think uh, might be good for our listeners to know? Well, I, you know, I think the, 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 the topic of interest for me really at the moment is the, the topic that we've spent time on is what is it that will follow the pandemic? Um, how long will it take uh, for, I mean, the virus is not gonna go away. Viruses don't go away, they, 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 for the most part. I mean, that's probably not a completely true statement, but for the most part, viruses don't disappear. Um, we develop, we as humans develop immunity to them. Um, and so the question is, how long is it gonna take to develop enough immunity that we can re return to a life where we don't have to be concerned with uh, whether we're two meters or six feet apart or, or, uh, or wearing masks or social distancing. Um, and that day will come, but it's going to take time. And when that day arrives, uh, what, uh, what will the world begin to look like? What will the, will the transformation begin to be? Will it be more of the same or will we see some fundamental differences? Um, certainly from a leadership and a more of a political point of view. Um, you know, we're entering into a period, obviously, with a presidential election here in the US. Um, and it's very likely that whoever wins the presidential election will be 
managing um, our way or leading leading the way through the process for the next most of the next uh, four years, uh, perhaps um, leading the nation and perhaps the world through some significant change and transformation. Um, so it's it's going to be a, a real challenge. Uh, whoever whoever uh, uh, ends up being the the winner uh, in the in this. Uh, contest here in the next uh, five months. And Dr. Fleming, sorry we didn't mention this earlier, but we were hoping to just hear maybe a little bit about the uh, the cool background you have going on there. <laughs> so um, there are a few faculty members from Berkeley, um, led by um, Olaf Groff, uh, who have a, a firm called Cambrian Futures, um, and they organized a um, a, a webcast uh, with that ended up having about 400 attendees uh, earlier last week on many of the same topics uh, that we're talking about here. Um, and, and really the intersection of technology, economics, uh, and leadership uh, in the, uh, in the, uh, the coronavirus uh, era and, and what, what that's likely to lead to uh, in terms of uh, the, um, the outcome uh, of, the, of the dislocation that we're all going through today. Well, I'm sad to not see Policy Punchline's logo on your virtual background. We should, we should also, uh, next time, try to sponsor the conference, you know? Right, all you have to do is send me a chart and I'll put it on to Zoom. <laughs> of course. Uh, Dr. Fleming, la last question before you go. Since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, we will always ask our guests at the very end, What's your punchline here for the show? Uh, my punchline is that we're very likely to see uh, very, very dramatic uh, policy change and transformation over the course of the next several years. Uh, it's more in the US, it's more likely to occur under a Biden administration, uh, perhaps less likely to occur under a second Trump administration. But um, I suspect, and that's part of what we're seeing in the streets today, right? There's, there's riots, there's protests, there's um, a reaction to the, the racism and the bigotry that we see. But I think it, uh, a lot of the reaction that we see in the streets is reflective of much greater pressure uh, in terms of not only the pandemic, but um, economic, uh, the disappointing economic performance in general. Um, you know, it's, you know, from Les Miserables, there's this, the famous song, Do You Hear the People Sing? Well, the people are singing in the streets. Um, and there's, there's now enormous pressure for change. And that's where the policy punchline comes. Uh, what are the changes that we're going to see in policy uh, as a result of all of this pressure that's built up, not just quite importantly in the racial sphere, but also uh, for workers and from a labor market perspective, uh, campaign finance, um, the, the role of money in government. Um, so I think there are, you, we're going to see some quite significant change. Uh, there probably uh, will not be any presidential candidates promising the voters of America radical change because that's probably not a good, uh, a good way to get elected president. But ultimately, I think that's what's, that's what's likely to emerge. Um, and it's in part a reflection of, of what, we're, what we're seeing in the streets today. 
Well, thank you so much for that insightful and optimistic punchline at the yeah. end, Dr. Fleming. And uh, thank you for all the work that you and IBM and, and the, your peer corporations are doing, carrying us forward to, through waves of innovations uh, ahead. So uh, thank you so much for joining sure. Will and it's I today. Pleasure. Yeah, good, good talking with you guys. We'll uh, and Will, th thanks so much for uh, co-hosting the show with me, Will. Really appreciate you getting me prepared on all those questions from digital currency to future work. Thanks so much. Great. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, and, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. Uh, find us on iTunes, Spotify, rate and review us. That was our interview with Dr. Martin Fleming. He's the IBM's chief economist. A wonderful conversation. Uh, you may watch the video on you, our YouTube channel as well. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.